Thanks, Roy. Um, yeah, it was a really awesome experience. Um, <clears throat> if you want to know about the competition, uh, it was decent. Um, some people had had transplant within the last year. Other people had had a transplant 10 years ago. Uh, so you had a whole variety of people in different levels of recovery and different levels of transplant organ failure and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I played uh, a few English guys, a German guy, an Australian. The English, the English guy won in our age group, which I'm still recovering from, but uh, there's always next time. So we'll, we'll work towards that. It's beginning of February, and did anyone make any New Year's resolutions? I'm not going to ask how you're going with it, because we're at the beginning of February. Um, but they did a survey at the end of 2023 asking what are the things that you want to do in the new year? And in no particular order, these were the top four things from basically Gen Z to Gen X that they were going to focus on. My question for you is, what do you think was number one? Out of these four, what do you think was the most highly voted New Year's resolution? Any guesses? Healthy lifestyle? What do you think? Saving money? Sounds like a good thing to do. Well, according to the survey, um, saving money actually was the number one thing. Um, followed by healthy lifestyle, go on a holiday and get a new job. And these were the things that people were like, okay, this is what I really want to focus on next year. But the, different, the challenging part to this, as anyone who has ever come up with a New Year's resolution, is according to Strava, most people break their New Year's resolution on January 12th. That is brutal. That's like not even two weeks into the new year and the resolution is already out the window. Um, the majority, though, um, last less than three months. So if you're still going and you're one month in, you are doing well. If you're still going and we hit April, you are above average. If you get through to the end of the year, you are like a resolution king, according to the rest of the, Australia. But like whether you make resolutions or not, what these really show is that in order to stick with something, and especially something like things like this, you need this thing called self-control. And it's not just self-control needed to achieve something. If you think about what you go through in your day, there is probably few moments where you don't have to exercise some level of self-control. And you know the consequences of what happens when you don't do that in that moment. I mean, we all experience it. We all, we all know what it's like. And so self-control is this ability to manage your emotions and your desires in any situation. And this can be simple as you're at the shops, it's near dinner time, you are really hungry, 
but you've got a list of groceries you need to get and then you see some things you're like oh that's not on the list but I'm feeling pretty hungry I might just grab that I might just grab that two those bigger things which they they can be so consuming and the desire can be so strong that your ability to to say no feels like it's impossible and you talk to people who struggle with addictions of any kind and that's that situation it's it's this this overwhelming need to do something but you have this conflict where your body says oh I want that but your head or your heart might be saying is that good for you though is that the best thing and so what does the bible have to say about all this I want to suggest I like Tim Keller's definition of this he says he said that self-control is the ability to choose the important over the urgent in the majority of situations to choose what's important not just what's urgent at a time and proverbs surprisingly has a little bit to say about this and as i was looking into this i thought oh yeah there's a few little proverbs there that'll help um, but digging into it deeper i realized man there is a lot of wisdom in these few proverbs as we unpack them so we're going to with your permission we're going to do that today Proverbs is this book where, if you've read it, 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 you can't kind of sit down and just read Proverbs, can you? It's, it doesn't really lend itself to an extended period of reading. There's these little snippets of advice and wisdom that come through it, and, and it feels, sometimes it feels a little bit ad hoc and just random. But it's, it's all about how to make good choices. The challenge with Proverbs, I don't know if you found this, but it's really nice if you have a problem and you look up the problem online and it gives you a step-by-step way to solve the problem. Proverbs doesn't do that. Proverbs said, be wise. And you're like, okay, I, I want to be wise. I want to make good decisions. It doesn't tell you how to make those good decisions. Instead, it tells you how to be the kind of person who makes those good decisions. And if you make those decisions and you follow the wisdom that is in the book and try to become that kind of person, then there's a good chance that as your life plays out and you come across those, those forks in the road where you need to decide, there's a high probability that you're going to make better decisions which are going to lead to life and joy and fulfilment and having an impact as well. So what does Proverbs have to say about self-control? Let me share a few of them with you. Proverbs 23. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. If anyone's thinking about Christmas lunch right now, you know, you eat it. Oh man, it's good. You eat a little bit more. You are so full. You don't want to go out and do stuff. You just want to lie down on the couch. And the wisdom... And here Proverbs is saying, if you keep doing that, it's going to catch up. There's going to be a problem that you're going to encounter as a result. Or this one, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Talk about self-control being the ability to choose the important over the urgent. Often the urgent, if someone says something to you, the urgent is, yeah, I've got something to say right back. I've got something that will really respond perfectly to what you've just said to me. But Proverbs says, hang on, 
reckless piercing like swords, that's what can happen if we choose the urgent instead of the important. Or this, to answer before listening, that's folly and shame. And I can attest to that. Often I'm in a conversation and someone's saying something. I'm not listening to what they're saying. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is what I'm going to say next. Yeah, this is going to be good. And I'm waiting for that moment to jump in and say that thing. But Proverbs says, hey, ignore the urgent. Focus on what's important. Well, this one, fools give vent to their full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. So these are examples of what happens when you don't exercise self-control. But I want to focus on this verse. And if you've got your devices or your Bibles, open up to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Highlight it. We're going to come back to this one frequently. Proverbs 25, 28 says this. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Now, when it talks about lack self-control there, it's, it's using language that says this person has no control over their spirit or over their emotions. Their emotions just run wild, and whatever the emotions say, the person does. And that person is like a city whose walls are broken through. So why does Solomon use this picture of a city with walls that are broken through? Like, what, what do we pull out of that to help us today? I don't know about you, but I don't live in a city that has walls. If you live in parts of Europe and different places, you might. But there's a guy by the name of David Fry who wrote a book about the history of walls. Like, he actually studied walls for a long time. I think that deserves some kind of recognition on its own because I couldn't do that. But he actually went around and he looked at all the walls in history and he studied them. And what he discovered was that when the first walls were built, it actually changed the way people lived dramatically. The first walls that he found, 2000 BC, built by the king of Samaria. And he suggests that when these walls came in and people started doing it, it actually brought about what he terms as a civilian revolution. And he said that walls provided, now the most obvious thing we all think of is protection. It keeps the wild animals out and keeps the bad people out and keeps the good people in. Now that's pretty obvious, but you think through the implications of that. If you're used to living in a tent or some kind of, um, even just like outdoors or some primitive shelter, without that protection, you're always going to be on alert. When you go to bed at night, you don't know what's going to happen. It's, I guess if you've had kids, um, it's kind of that half asleep, half not asleep. Was that the cat? Was that the baby? What's that noise? Or if you've been somewhere where it's not quite safe and you try and sleep there, you're not fully asleep. You're kind of semi-asleep. And he said that when walls came in, people didn't have to worry about what was going to come, and so they could sleep in peace. And if you get a good night's sleep, that makes a world of difference. But not only that, because they were within this, this safe environment, instead of being outside where anyone could attack at any time, they're in a place where that isn't a problem anymore. 
And so instead of having to walk around armed all the time and having your weapons nearby to bring them up, in a walled city, you don't have to do that. And so people would not carry around their weapons for their own personal protection, and as a result, violence became less of a thing. And if you're not having to fight to protect yourself, then you can don't have to devote all your time to learning those skills. You can actually devote your time to doing other things, like learning pottery or weaving or baking sourdough bread or whatever it might be. So it built up this whole new set of skills amongst the community, and as a result, it became a great place for trade and commerce to happen. So we think of walls as just, yeah, they're good for protection, But actually, the more you look into it, walls provided so much more than just that. It brought stability, it brought safety, it brought peace, it brought a new way of of living. And as technology and skill increased, so did the size and the quality of the walls. Uh, Anyone know where this photo is from? Any guesses? If you say not Australia, yes, you're correct. Tuscany? No, not quite. Further west. Croatia, we're getting closer. These are in Constantinople. Um, The walls, these are called the Theodosian walls. They were uh, built first off around 400 BC, just as little Roman... Uh, mounds of dirt to protect an area. And over time, and each successive empire that took over that place, they got those walls and they did some renovations and they added more and added more. Until 400 AD, um, Theodosius II took over and he decided to really next level it. And so these walls that he built, you've got the, the inner wall, No, that just makes a blink. So the one on the far right, the inner wall, this one's about five metres thick and 12 metres high. So inside of that is where everyone lives. But then next to that, you've got this outer wall, which is about nine metres high and two metres thick. But just in case that's not enough, he then built a moat, which was 20 metres wide and in some places 10 metres deep. So in order to get into this city, you had to cross the moat, you had to get through the outer wall, get through the inner wall, and then you could overtake the city. So, I mean, a a massively difficult feat for anyone to do until the Ottomans arrived. And they said, how do we take down this place? And they went, we've got to build a gun. And so they built this fella. This is the Dardanelles gun, which the original gun was, was designed off. And this is an eight-metre steel-forged cannon. It would shoot a metal, uh, a stone rock, about 270 kilos, about one and a half k's. And the Ottoman um, leader said, we need something to break through these walls. So he commissioned this guy called Orban to build this cannon, which he did in about three months, They then used, I think it was like 80 oxen to carry it to outside the city and all the army was there and camped around it. They set up this gun and they started firing. And it would take about three hours to reload the gun 
So it wasn't like a quick experience. But they kept doing this and doing this and doing this with the hope that they could finally break down these walls. And after six months of pretty much continual bombardment, they were able to make a tiny breach in one of the walls and within about 24 hours, they'd taken the city. And a person without self-control is like a city with a broken wall. It invites chaos. It invites problems. With a broken wall comes a fair bit of pain. If you remember, a guy by the name of Nehemiah was a, a Jewish exile in Susa, and he got word back from his hometown of what was happening in Jerusalem. And he asked them, hey, what's going on? And they said, the walls are broken down. And he, he hears this, and he just breaks down weeping. Because he knows that without those walls, his city is, is not a city. It's not a safe place. It's not a place that you can go to. It's not a place where there's trade and commerce and life happening. It's a place that's ruined and destroyed. And a person without self-control is just inviting chaos and disaster into your life. Now think about it. If, if you say whatever your emotions feel like saying at any point, I mean, really quickly, you're going to lose most likely your job. <laughs> you're going to alienate yourself from your friends and family. It's not going to go well. Similarly, if, if every time... I feel anxious or stressed, I turn to ice cream. Pretty soon, my doctor is going to say, hey, I don't know what you've been doing, but this is not good. Your body is not doing well, and you're going to have to make some big choices here because you're turning to this thing, and you're not using self-control. And it's just so easy to choose the urgent. What I want right now, based on my emotions and my desires and my needs, versus what's actually important for me in the long run. And look, practically, you know this, but you know when you're stressed, you don't think, "Hmm, yeah, I want the chocolate." but I don't think I'm going to have it because in five years' time, that might, it may not be good for me. Like, your brain doesn't work like that. Maybe yours does. If I want to learn from you if that's you. But generally, you just do what you want to feel in that moment, especially with, with things like that. Or if you're angry, your body says, hey, vent, get this out, instead of take some time, slow down, calm down. We, it's so easy to run to these temporary things when we face challenges. And Proverbs to that says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall to hide a scale. We run to the things that we think are going to help us when we face a challenging situation. And that's pretty natural. And they may actually work in the short term, but there's a good chance in the long term those things that we run to aren't actually going to help us that much. And so we can live in this place of running to these things that aren't good for us, maybe sometimes knowing we shouldn't do that, not exercising self-control, and as a result just feel shame, 
like we can't do it, guilt that we keep falling for it, and we either look for a solution or we just continue that shame and guilt spiral. And the irony is every religion actually has something to say about this. In the ancient Greek thought, self-control is important because it makes you look good. Other people see you exercising self-control and they're like, oh, look at, that's impressive. Like, yeah, that's good. In Islam, the purpose of self-control is to purify your soul. In Buddhism, it's to overcome karma. And you, you get it by spiritual practices. In Hinduism, it elevates you to the level of God. And it just takes hard effort. And these all require you to do it on your own. It's, it's on you and you alone to exercise self-control. And this is what I love about Christianity. It's, it's different. Yes, we need to seek wisdom to be able to use self-control and have it. But how we go about that is different. This is what Proverbs says. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So when in trouble, the righteous, they don't run to money or food or sex or alcohol or drugs or relationships. Instead, where do they run? The name of the Lord. And so what is that name of the Lord? What do we get out of that? I want to suggest that the name of the Lord is a way of encapsulating all that God is. I want to show you a few photos and see if you can tell me kind of what you think they might represent. This is a cafe. Guess what they serve? Deconstructed smashed avocado. You get to pay a lot of money to make your own breakfast. Where would that be? Any guess? Melbourne? Correct. Where else? This is a forecast. Have a look at that. What does it remind you of? That's a Melbourne forecast, isn't it? Last picture. This is a breakfast, another breakfast menu item. It's called a barista's breakfast. It's a latte, a long black, and an espresso for one person. (laughs) What does that make you think of? Melbourne. You see some of these things, you're like, yep, that's, that's so Melbourne. While you don't actually, may not be able to define exactly what it is, you can just say, yeah, that's, that's Melbourne. And it's, it's this way of encapsulating, encompassing all that Melbourne is just in, in a word, that's, that's Melbourne. That's what it like, it's like with the name of the Lord. It encompasses all that God is, his goodness, his love, his kindness, his perfection, his creativity, his beauty, his, his wisdom, his generosity. And this phrase, the name of the Lord, is used 98 times in the Bible. But overwhelmingly, it's used around action. Abraham, he called on the name of the Lord. David fought Goliath in the name of the Lord. Job praised 
the name of the Lord. Jeremiah prophesied in the name of the Lord. Jesus was welcomed in Jerusalem and came in the name of the Lord. The disciples were baptized into the name of the Lord. Paul was willing to die for the name of the Lord. And in Proverbs, the righteous run to the name of the Lord. And in the New Testament, it looks like this. Let me read this passage from from Titus. Because in the Old Testament, it kind of, it talks about running to the name of the Lord. This is your fortified tower. That's where you go to when your walls are being breached and you feel like you don't have self-control. The New Testament puts that this way. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, little side detour here. If you were writing a book and you were giving a character assessment of yourself, you would probably not put that. But the honesty and the authenticity of the writers of the New Testament suggests how could they have not been writing but themselves explaining who they were and what they had experienced and what they were like. But you look at all those things that are mentioned, are they not because there is a lack of self-control? Are they not choosing the urgent over the important? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and desires, pleasures full of malice and envy... So this is what they were. Then it goes on to say, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works we had done, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ our Savior. See, Christianity says self-control is not something you achieve on your own. And so if you struggle with this and you feel like you can't overcome it, that's okay because Christianity says you're not supposed to do it on your own. You actually can't do it on your own. We play our part and we we accept Jesus into our lives, but the renewal work is done by who? It's done by the Holy Spirit inside of you, renewing, working, changing. And that passage it was up is love. No, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So how can we be like this strong, unbroken wall that is sturdy, that is firm, that doesn't allow chaos and destruction in, but instead is, is standing firm when those things come? I want to suggest three things. And the first one is to choose surrender. Every moment, every day, say, God, my desires, my emotions, I can't handle them. You've seen that. You know that. I want to give them to you. I want to surrender surrender them to you. I want to be renewed by your spirit. I know it'll take work on my part to trust to listen, but I want to surrender. And then remember and repeat God's word. You know, there are so many promises, there are so many things in scripture which can help us when we're in that moment. Instead of focusing on the urgent, they say, hey, no, 
Renew your mind on what's important. Remember what's important. And as we do repeat God's word more regularly, that's what's going to be our focus rather than what we're feeling, what we're struggling with, what we're desiring. And I'm not saying that it happens instantly. The battle continues and it will continue until we stop breathing. But God's promise is, I'm going to be there with you as you go through these challenges. I'm going to be there. My Holy Spirit is going to renew you. And if you surrender, if you repeat my word, you have a much better chance of being the kind of wise person who makes good decisions. Now, if you're thinking, yep, heard this, we hear this regularly, it's what we're told, I know... But the reality is, Fraser, you're coming here, you don't know my situation, you don't know what I experience, you don't know what I'm going through, you don't know the pressures I have. This stuff doesn't work. I hear you. Um, Do we have any physios here? Okay. I broke my wrist a few years ago and had some surgery and he sent me to a hand therapist, and said, um, if you do what she tells you to do, you'll regain full recovery of your wrist. How often do you go to a physio and they tell you to do exercises? Maybe I should ask you, how many patients do you have who come to you the first time and you tell them to do the exercises and they come back two weeks later and they say, yeah, it's not working? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a leap here. I'm well outside my lane, but do you say, how have you gone with your exercises? Okay. And they say, yeah, I'll, to be honest, the first day was really good. Second day, yeah, and no, I haven't actually done them. I actually forgot all about them, but my wrist is not better. You're just trying to, it's just a hoax. You're just trying to get me back to make more money or, It's the same with this. We say, hey, God, I keep messing up. And I've had these conversations with him and that little voice comes back and says, yeah, okay, Fraser, um, when did you last surrender to me? When did you last give me your emotions, your desires, your needs, your life? And when did you last spend time remembering or repeating my word? When did you spend last time reading it, getting to know it, putting it into practice throughout your day? And I'm like, yeah. Um, That's the part we play. We choose to surrender. We choose to remember and repeat God's word. And God's going to help us. Yes, We're still going to give in. Yes, we're not always going to have solid brick walls all the time. But we're going to be the kind of people who know that when that happens, we can run back to the name of the Lord. Not walk, but we can run back to him. Not to those other things. We run back to the name of the Lord saying, hey, God, I've I've messed up. I I didn't do those things. I, I know I should have, but I didn't. And he says, yeah, I know. I'm here. You are forgiven. Let's get back to the drawing board. Let's let's do this again. There's 
One last story I want to share with you about yeah, how to have self-control, I think. There was a group of friends who were walking through an orchard. It was evening, and they'd, just, they'd had dinner together, had a good time, had some great conversation, and they were walking through this orchard, and they noticed that one of them was a bit different. Normally, I mean, they all had a good time together. Normally, this guy was pretty happy, pretty, pretty relaxed, um, kind of intense at times, but always just seemed to look on the, the side of life that spoke to optimism and hope. But yeah, tonight, this night, he was, he was different. And they noticed that. And he, he said to them, hey guys, can you just stay here? I just need a bit of time. And he took three of his friends with him and he said to them, guys, I'm, I'm crushed. I'm crushed right now. Can you just stay with me for a bit? Just, just be with me. And they didn't really know what he was going through, didn't quite understand it, couldn't quite get it, but they said, yeah, we can do that. And Jesus went on a little bit further and we're told that he, he falls down on his face and he starts praying. And he says, my father, if there is any way, get me out of this. But please, this is not about what I want. This is, this is what you want. What do you want me to do? And he prayed this prayer three times. Jesus knew full well what was coming. He was going to experience this cheap betrayal. He was going to be arrested, beaten, unfairly tried, taken to a place of extreme agony and pain and crucified. But he also carried the immense weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. And that weight was separating him from God. It was shutting him off from his father and, and Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So we were shutting him off from God. And in that moment, Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Now, if you're talking about self-control being the ability to manage your emotions and desires in a moment, Jesus' emotions and desires in that moment, I'm pretty sure they were saying, stop, get out of here. You do not have to do this. Just go. That's what the urgent would have been saying. But Jesus instead chose to go, no, God, what's important here? What matters here? And so he chose the important over the urgent. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And the question that comes out of that is, what was that joy that was set before him? What did Jesus have after the cross that he didn't have before? It's, it's us. It's our ability to choose to follow him, to be forgiven, to be connected back with God. The joy that was before him was you and me. And so he endured and chose what was important. He chose, he chose us. 
And I think that helps summarise the, the third thing that helps us choose self-control, and that is to be compelled by love. To let love be the thing that, that drives us. That's, that's wisdom. That's self-control. Jesus' love for God helped him choose what mattered in that moment. And instead of going with what he wanted to do and felt like doing, he said, no, I'm going to go with what is really important because he surrendered to God, because he knew God's word. He repeated it, but also because he knew that his love for God made him want to follow his way. His love for us made him want to choose that too. So I want to encourage you. God may want to challenge you. That's up to him. That's not me. To be the people who choose self-control. Not because you have the power to do it and not because it earns you anything, but because your love for God is the thing that makes you want to follow him. And as you repeat his word, as you choose to daily say, God, I'm yours, my desires, my needs, my emotions, I'm surrendering them to you as well. As you do that, I I have no doubt that God will come and he'll meet you there and he'll say, yeah, let's do this. I'm the God who is with you. I'm the name that you can run to and I'll be your strong tower to support you, to be beside you. And the cool thing about all of this is at the end of it, it's not so we look good. That's not what it's about. It's at the end of it when we can exercise that, when we can allow God to do things in our lives, we can say, this is, this is all about him. This is what he's done in me and I'm just so grateful that that's the kind of God that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God that loves us, that walks with us, that doesn't leave us in our struggles. Thank you for being the God who deals with shame, who offers forgiveness, and who says, run to me. Father, we all struggle with self-control at times. Sometimes it's for the seemingly small things. Sometimes it's for those big things that, that are the, the giant barriers in our life. But God, you are the one who is that strong tower. We want to run to you. We want to be safe with you. And so, God, my prayer for each person here is that they will consider what it looks like to surrender to you. They'll spend time with you in your word, not just reading it, but also doing their best to remember it and repeat it throughout the day so that that is the strong tower that that fortifies them. And Father, we, we can only do this because you love us. And because of that, we want to love you back. We don't want to exercise self-control and, and obey you just because we think it's going to get us somewhere or benefit us in some way. We want to do it because we love you and you know what's best for us. So I just pray your blessing on each person here. 
Thank you for the way that you have worked in their lives and thank you for what you will continue to do because you are a good God. We ask this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.